You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So let's begin. It is uh, May 21st, 2020. It's 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. This is meditation and attachment, deepening your practice. And we've been talking about the stages of insight um, as Mahasi Sero described them. And I thought that we would um, just review it uh, a little bit as we move into talking about um, arising and passing. Um, In the, uh, but before I do that, I should just uh, ask if everybody's, uh, how is everybody faring? Any thoughts or questions that you wanted to share with the group before we start? Everybody getting along okay? All right. Um, one of the things about uh, Dharma maps is that it's a, it's a description of a, a progress of uh, of investigation or a map of what a progress of investigation might be like. Um, there are lots of different Dharma maps out there, and so uh, I'm not uh, purporting to suggest that this is the only map or the only way to go. What you tend to notice when when you practice in a particular way is that the insights that that kind of practice can produce tend to be the thing that you discover. And so when you organize your practice, uh, um, it is uh, useful to really know what it is that you're trying to uh, achieve in the practice. Um, In the beginning of the stripped down uh, version of uh, Vipassana meditation that's offered in the West was very appealing to me because I had a lot of trouble with the uh, more, ritualistic aspect of some of the more traditional practices, which reminded me of the traditional practices of uh, Christianity that I grew up with, that I was uncomfortable with. Um, Shinzen, uh, my, the first teacher that I really dove in with, was um, uh, is a mindfulness teacher, which means that he's He's pulled out a lot of the um, language of the traditional teachings and the expressions of them. Um, And he also comes uh, from a kind of mashup anyway. He studied um, uh, Japanese Vajrayana in Japan, so the Tibetan uh, way of practicing, but the Japanese version of that. Uh, he also studied with uh, Goenka and a, and a monk in Taiwan in, in the that Vipassana way of doing it. Also, when he was in Japan, um, different uh, approaches of uh, Japanese Zen. Um, and when he came to uh, America, he was uh, originally teaching this sort of esoteric Japanese Vajrayana um, uh, way of practicing, which didn't resonate well with the, with the students that he had here. Uh, and so he began to teach a kind of Vipassana practice. 
Um, then he became the translator for Sasaki Roshi, who does a Rinzai Zen approach. And so um, even though he says that what he's teaching is a kind of straight Vipassana, Theravada practice, it's always been infused with uh, the, the teachings of different lineages in, of Buddhism. Um, and in the beginning, of course, without much knowledge of all of this, I, I just took them all in as, a, as part of uh, what was being presented as a kind of uh, secularized Western uh, Theravada practice. And then the more I, I dove into it, the more it became clear to me that he'd taken elements from all over the place. And his attitude about uh, maps has always been that uh, there isn't one universal map, and you need to have one universal map that applies to everyone. Um, but I don't have that view. I think that different maps create different perspectives on what, what it is that we're trying to understand with the practice and that they can be useful uh, as a way of organizing practice. Uh, if, if you don't have some organizing uh, methodology or some map, um, in my mind, uh, you end up going down these sort of parallel journeys that aren't really related to the pursuit of enlightenment. His remedy to that was to have a teacher in place that would guide you, but then it's finding that teacher and who it is that will do that for you, and then being in a regular enough conversation with them that you uh, have their guidance as you move through that. Um, the way that we practice in, in the West isn't really set up for that very well. and It's hard to come by a teacher who you can be in a close enough dialogue with to be able to, to guide you um, without a map, at least for someone like me who likes a lot of instructions and a lot of directions in, in how to explore. So the use of maps has always been useful to me. And I, when I discovered this particular uh, translation by Mahasi, um, it was very useful to me. Now, in the beginning uh, of this journey for myself, the early uh, exploration was simply this map because the rest of the manual had not been translated. And so this chapter on the progress of insight, which is from uh, the manual of insight, which is now available, um, didn't have the, the rest of the, the commentary in there that you could then use to support the way that you practice this. And so I just adapted Shinzen's uh, strategies to pursuing this. But in the beginning, the idea is simply to begin to pull apart the sensing experience. This is Vipassana, divide, be, uh, and Pasana to see clearly what's happening. And so you begin to pull apart the six senses, understanding um, the five senses is fairly easy because we have them in the West. The sixth one is mind, which is a little bit different. So touching, seeing, taste, uh, hearing, tasting, smelling, and then mind. Mind is the activity of what you focus on. And then this collection of mind moments that you then string together to form conceptual reality from absolute reality. Absolute reality being the capacity that we have to sense. Um, and then uh, fixating it or attaching to it and 
and creating the experience of solidness from that. So uh, in the beginning, we're just uh, sensitizing ourselves to the, the nature of these act these kinds of activations. So the capacity to sense meets the object can be sensed. The consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which is then evaluated as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or needs urgent attention doesn't really matter. Pleasant if there's time, and then that's compared to the perceptual database of, of previously experienced things or our capacity to imagine them. And if there's a close enough match, that undifferentiated sensing experience is attached to, that knowledge is attached to it, and it becomes this perception, um, this conceptual reality, our interpretation of what's happening. And in the beginning, we understand that our conditioning creates these lists of preferred uh, uh, objects to focus on, and we create our uh, our uh, conceptual reality from our preferences. And so we don't actually uh, um, sense or build these models on what's happening, but we do it on what, what it means to us. Um, with then understanding that the, the, the way that you've created conceptual reality in this moment informs the way that you create it in the next moment. In some sense, you choose something uh, in this moment, and then from that choice, the possibilities of the next moment arise. Um, I'm quite fascinated lately with the descriptions of this in quantum mechanics. And so we're in the undifferentiated, unfixated uh, form in the wave aspect. And then as soon as we collapse the wave into a particle aspect, conceptual reality forms out of the wave. And, um, and from that place of fixation, when we release it and it goes back into the waveform, the next um, possibilities to choose from are there. Our conditioning can limit our view so that we don't see the full range of choices that are available to us in each next moment. And so we, we can get into these habits of choosing from a narrow selection of possibility, even though all of the other possibilities are there. And the, each time you choose, of course, and open up into the next moment, the possibility of the next moment is linked to the moment that we're in. And so we can move into these cycles, either these virtuous cycles or these vicious cycles of opportunity to choose from. Um, the uh, idea then is to move into this idea of uh, comprehension. Let's see. And um, the way that the Mahasi describes this or explores it is really uh, akin to the three characteristics uh, of existence, anatta, nietzsche, and dukkha. Um, anatta is not self, uh, nietzsche is impermanence, and dukkha is su suffering. That's a common translation. Shinzen always translated it as unsatis unsatisfactoriness, and Dan Brown um, 
one of my teachers translates it as reactivity. To see that the nature or the experience of self that arises in the moment is actually conceptual reality, not the, the sensing experience, and that it, it arises based on the conditions of the present moment and is part of the sensing experience. Um, that there is no intrinsic, ongoing, constant, complete uh, self that lasts, that in each moment that you experience the self, it arises based on the conditions of the present moment. And so each time it arises, it's different in some ways than it was the last time it arose. And that it, it, it doesn't last, it arises and passes like everything else. This points to this nature of impermanence that all sensing experiences arise and pass, all conceptual realities arise and pass. Nothing is ongoing, permanent, lasting. And then the last one is the unsatisfactoriness or the reactivity. The, the one reason I like the, the definition of reactivity is because the reactions of our sense gates uh, happen each time an object is available to sense. And no matter how far uh, along the path you get, that reactivity is still there. Um, and then uh, once we see clearly these three characteristics and these aspects, um, we move into the next um, stage, which is knowledge of rising and passing and then the corruptions of insight. I'm not going to go into the conversation about the corruptions of insight tonight. Um, I want to talk instead about the experience of arising and passing. Um, uh, it's often described as an arising and passing event, and it's often confused with the moment of enlightenment um, that they talk about fruition. But it's early in the process of insight that's necessary for enlightenment, and it's not the same thing. But it is characterized often by these high concentration states and an ease of bringing your attention to any sensing act activation and being able to follow clearly the arising and passing of it. So wherever you turn your attention, you notice this arising and passing. And so it tends to map onto uh, Vipassana jhana practice um, and uh, really an arising and passing event that, that is um, classical in its presentation is what we would uh, associate with the sixth uh, Vipassana jhana. I've talked uh, about um, the... Uh, jhanas before, uh, not going so deeply into them, but in, in, and it also depends on whether you're talking about the canonical uh, descriptions of jhana or the uh, uh, the descriptions of them that are in the Vasudhimaga. So, um, and it's basically the difference um, between the descriptions of four, four and five in terms of the jhanas. It's, might be a little bit uh, uh, dry and academic to go into it, but 
In the first jhana, uh, there are five elements present. You place your attention on the object. You sustain awareness of it. Um, the mind becomes engaged in the ob object of meditation uh, energetically. Uh, a peacefulness or a blissfulness overtakes the body, and then the mind settles into one-pointedness. The first jhana tends to be uh, uh, very uh, unstable, and so you pop out of it quite a bit. One of the experiences about this fourth stage is that the concentration is so complete and that the, the clarity of the arising and passing in any of the sense gates is so complete that you really do need to move beyond something that just uh, uh, a momentary a high concentration state. When you, when you drop into a deeper second jhana state, the, you no longer need to place and sustain awareness. The mind settles into the one-pointedness. So you have the, the rapture, or the PT is the Pali word. You have the blissfulness of that, and you are in... Um, a one-pointed state, but even in that state of second jhana, the coarseness of the energy of the rapture becomes too much, and you settle into the third jhana, which is just the blissfulness and the one-pointedness. And then as you settle uh, into the fourth jhana, because the blissfulness itself becomes too distracting, you, you swap the blissfulness for equanimity. So the fourth jhana is the state of one-pointedness with equanimity. And then you move into the fifth jhana, which is this expansive uh, capacity to uh, take in all sensing experience. And then um, as that settles further and you come into the sixth jhana, what, what's mostly... Uh, talked about is this bright light that appears in visual thinking space. One of the, the first time that it happened for me, I was on retreat at, at uh, La Casa de Maria in Montecito, uh, sitting with Shinzen on his year-end retreat. And it was so surprising because I thought that a car had pulled up and was shining their headlight in my eyes. Um, and it was disconcerting because there was no way that a car could drive up there. And, uh, and so I opened my eyes and of course, uh, there was nothing there and, um, and closed my eyes and, and came back into this place of this bright light. But what also began to happen is that the concentration was so intense that wherever I, I directed my attention, or wherever the mind directed my attention, I could see very clearly this, this cycle of arising and passing. And, uh, and so uh, fully present and fully aware for what's what, of what's happening, it's a very pleasant, uh, blissful state, um, uh, or uh, a calm state, um, <clears throat> And then because you can see so clearly and so rapidly the rising and passing of each event, the solidity of conceptual reality become, becomes uh, open and, and initially quite jagged and uh, bouncy. Um, um, 
and and wherever your your attention is drawn to, that's what's happening. You can see clearly, uh, and sometimes at tremendous speed, this arising and passing. It even can take on this almost pulse-like experience of opening and closing, opening and closing, light, dark, light, dark. And one of the reasons I think that it's easy to begin to confuse this moment of arising and passing with uh, the experience of enlightenment is because it, the whole sense of solid uh, self and solid world comes apart. Um, which opens up in some sense of the fifth stage, uh, which is dissolution. Vanganada is the molecule. Um, and then we have this uh, this uh, loss of equanimity that can come up pretty easily because of some kind of clinging aspect to this. Um, <clears throat> And I um, wondered about this quite a bit. Why was it? Why was this uh, experience, which is fairly ordinary, and if you, you sit a longer retreat, something that happens uh, to quite a lot of people, uh, at least in the in the Shenzhen community and uh, in Dan Brown's community where I've sat, uh, these kinds of experiences are pretty ordinary. The Tibetan version of it is different. In the description of it and the techniques that you use are a little bit different to get there, but the the, the sameness of, of the the two uh, uh, actually when I first noticed it, it was a little disappointing because I was so familiar with the Theravada map I thought I'll explore the Tibetan map and it will be so different that it'll be really energizing and then it was so the same uh, that it was a little disappointing. Um, so I was wondering what it was that uh, made it uh, not such a big deal for some people and really challenging for other people. And uh, and I, I tend to reflect on these things through the attachment lens. And what I thought was in uh, looking at this, that, um, that people who were quite authentic seemed to have less difficulty than people who were inauthentic in terms of how they represented themselves. That um, one of the things that, that becomes much harder to do when you go through these processes is to maintain the strategy of inauthenticity as a way of navigating things. And so uh, when, when you can't use inauthenticity anymore as a way of navigating, and you don't have other skill sets and people are quite used to being in relationship to you uh, and you're uh, negotiating things inauthentically, they become uh, challenged by it and you also become challenged by it. And so one of the things that I recommend is that you move now as much as you can toward authenticity so that if your practice does take you into these places that it, it doesn't unwind you uh, and, and, and create a sense of disturbance. But when you move uh, from the fourth stage of arising and passing into the fifth stage of dissolution, the experience is quite profound, that you're, you're conscious in the sense of conscious awareness 
um, but the physical physicality of the body is completely lost. Um, and the concentration state is really uh, high and the sensory clarity is really high and the equanimity is really high. And wherever you turn your attention, you can see uh, clearly the arising and passing of each sensory experience. And you can see the way that each of these sensory experiences come together to form the experience of conceptual reality. And because you can see all of that so clearly conceptual reality becomes much less compelling. And so what can happen is a fearfulness arises uh, in the experience of this, or a, a sense of despair arises, um, or a sense of being limited by the body uh, and being disturbed by that arises in, in this period of practice. Um, and that tends to interfere with, uh, with the nature of the practice at this stage. Um, I remember being on retreat. It, it's not unusual for, uh, being on the teaching side of things uh, to have somebody begin to report that they're going into the experience of a dissolution uh, on a longer retreat. And then uh, to try to uh, guide them in um, the current debate on, uh, on this kind of practice, Um, if you go strongly into a, a dissolution experience and you come out the other side of it, uh, the, the Buddhist term for it is the knowledge of the miseries. And the Christian term is uh, the dark night of the soul. And so um, you, if, you're, if you travel in meditation circles or in Vipassana circles, you may have heard these terms before or had discussions about it. Um, because it was such an ordinary experience in Shinzen's world and, and the way that it comes up in the, the Dan's world of the Tibetan practice, it isn't considered much of a big deal and, and you have adequate instruction in how to address it as it comes up. Um, um, but it, it can be quite derailing if, if that experience happens to you and you don't have somebody that can help you. The knowledge of the miseries is related to the three characteristics again. So the, the fearfulness that arises through the deep insight into no self is that there isn't really a self. And if you've relied that, uh, on that as an organizing principle uh, for the way that you manage things, then you see clearly that that actually is a construction that arises and passes in each moment. Um, it, be, it becomes quite, uh, or can become quite fearful that you don't have that actually as uh, something reliable to count on. Misery is the aspect of the impermanence, which is that nothing actually lasts. One of the things about this, of course, is that if you observe these things closely, you see that that is actually just how it is, and it's always been that way. Nothing has ever lasted. Um, and yet we sometimes uh, prevent ourselves from uh, wanting to know that or we create these constructions of security around things lasting. If you listen to a pop song, for instance, 
uh, I'm, we're going to be in love forever. This love is never going to end. All of those different themes that are really embedded in, in our, our culture, our present, and yet nothing lasts. Everything changes. Everything is constantly changing. Uh, there is no ground. There is only the groundless ground of change. Uh, and so um, that can be quite dis disconcerting. And then you move into the, the it's called uh, disgust in uh, English, typically uh, the knowledge of the misery that's associated with um, uh, uh, dukkha, the three stages of dukkha. You live in a body which will grow old, which will get sick, and which will die. Nothing you can do about that. Um, sometimes you get what you want, but you always lose it. Sometimes you don't get what you want, and sometimes you have to put up with things that you don't want. And then the subtle, ongoing, constant irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything, which is this double-edged sword. It's not how you want it, and you're not in charge of it. Um, and then the idea then is to come into a place where you integrate those point of views as the basis of how you operate. And so they no longer become difficult or frightening, they become the way it is. And it puts you in this fork in one direction is nihilism, nothing matters, so why should I do anything? And in the other direction, it's engaging, engaging as much as possible in every moment because everything will end. And if you don't take it while it's available to you, there's no way to preserve it or take it later. And so you fully engage in each moment. And this is the place of real enrichment, the, the place of real meaningfulness. And it comes from this process of beginning to notice nothing lasts. So in the fourth stage, the meditation that we're looking at or looking to pursue is this process of noticing arising, middle, and end. And so the technique that we use is called uh, just noting gone. And in the just noting gone technique, we look for the ending of things. One of the ways that the experience of uh, something lasting uh, and something being permanent is created is the mind moving from arising to arising to arising and skipping the, the ending part. So, uh, and in some sense, awareness is the bridge for that. So you have the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it when they meet, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. And if you're uncomfortable with the collapse of consciousness as each um, uh, sensing event ends, you can shift your attention to awareness, which is ongoing, and wait for the next moment of consciousness and then switch back into consciousness and create this continuous experience of things being there uh, simply by this movement between uh, consciousness and awareness. And so there's a, a um, confusion there or a lack of clarity what is consciousness, what is the sensing experience, and what is the knowing of that sensing experience. In the early part of this map, there was the, the understanding of body-mind, the, the 
differentiation between the sensing experience and the knowing what the sensing experience is, so that we could begin to pull that apart. But here is the thing about awareness versus consciousness. Awareness, when you think about it, is almost always there. There's only a short period uh, during deep sleep where consciousness turns off. But if you're aware of dreaming or uh, aware of the twilight of sleep, awareness is there. Uh, one of the other times when awareness is affected is uh, in some kind of anesthesia related to some medical experience, or I suppose you could drug yourself into that place too, if you wanted to. Um, awareness, uh, uh, anesthesia for surgery and that sort of thing doesn't really kill pain, it kills awareness, so you're not present to notice the experience of it. Um, <clears throat> So in this arising and passing, what typically happens is the speed of which the arising and passing happens makes the, the way of doing Vipassana that we've done earlier in this, where it's uh, a noting and labeling process, that the arising and passing becomes so swift that you can't, you don't have time to generate the labeling. So you're just in a straight noting uh, experience. Uh, Daniel Ingram, in his book, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, pays it, uh, says, gives special preference to a kind of pulsing uh, impermanence. So it's a kind of on-off experience of, uh, of the flow of consciousness. And so you may notice that that begins to happen. Flow is the term that Shinzen uses to describe the energetics of um, um, impermanent energy in the body. Um, and in the beginning, there are five aspects of this that, that, that is in the literature. Um, the first is a kind of subtle uh, vibratory energy that, that arises in the body. And then um, it tends to intensify um, the second level is a kind of jolting of energy that goes through. Um, so the first one is almost like a kind of goosebumps. You know the term goosebumps or goose flesh, the hairs all stand up, that kind of energy in the body, uh, a jolt through the body. As the mind settles into these high concentration states, you get an energy that suffuses through the whole body. They're, they talk about a... Um, an uplifting energy. The uplifting energy, um, uh, they describe it as actually uh, uh, levitating, lifting off the ground and being suspended in the air. Um, I really wasn't familiar with that um, until I went to sit in Myanmar, and there it was uh, actually not unusual to see people exhibiting that kind of uh, uh, intensity of flow state. Um, and what would happen is that they would rise up and they would sort of move forward and hold these postures that seemed absolutely to defy gravity and were impossible to imagine getting into. And you, you know that you have a proprioceptive system where the, the, there's a 
feedback between visual experience, visual thinking, and um, the felt sense of the body, and, and when the, the, the PT energy or the flow energy gets into the, that proprioceptive system, it can um, totally distort the system, and then the body just corrects itself by attempting to hold itself in a way that it, that, that it thinks is a normal posture, even though it's this uh, incredibly um, amazing posture. And, and, and people stay there for really long periods of time, which seems to defy uh, physics, but nonetheless, there they are. And then there's the, the fifth stage, which is this complete uh, lack of solidity in the body so that when you're sitting on the cushion or you're sitting on a chair, you can't protect the chair uh, as a separate from, within the, the flow of energy. You can't detect the body. And so it becomes this awareness in this, this uh, energetic field, um, which is actually uh, um, the, the thing that in the beginning, of course, creates a fearfulness but when you become acclimatized to the nature of it, it actually becomes quite a pleasant and enjoyable experience. I remember on one retreat that the, the intensity of it was nearly complete, um, but my feet and my head remained solid. And, but there was nothing in between them. And so it was like walking down the road with a balloon attached to my feet, uh, the balloon being my head. Uh, and, and I found that quite uh, hilarious um, in terms of experience. It is a very ordinary and normal process to go through this. And if you find that you practice in a way that this begins to happen, understand um, that if you get into a, into a rough patch with the knowledge of the miseries, that there are, are different strategies that you can use to come out of that. Um, um, Stephen, you sent me a question. Is that in order? Uh, could you uh, give me a little bit more? What What is it? Yeah. In terms of the PT, the development of PT, or the development of insight? Um, no, it doesn't need to go in order. Um, it, it's just a description of the different types of PT experience that are, uh, that often accompany this. The, um, and the progress of insight um, In monastic texts, they tend to be emphatic in describing these things uh, as this is how it is, and it's this way for everybody. But I haven't had that experience either with my own practice or with um, uh, listening to people's description of their own practice. Um, what's useful about using the descriptions um, is that you have a sense of where you are, and then you also have a sense of which techniques to employ. Uh, to move uh, through the, the different stages. 
for instance, in the arising and passing stage and in the dissolution stage, concentration is amazing. And everything is very clear and, and, and uh, um, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, the first few times it happens, it's a breathtaking experience that you, ha you actually have the capacity to do that. And then it's like you're spit out into a place where you can't concentrate at all and you're terrified and miserable and disgusted and you can't believe that you lost that really heightened um, delicious pleasurable state and now you're in this um, uh, and then you feel this undercurrent of the desire to be free from suffering which is what it's described as but it's this undercurrent to come out of that clinging to these structures that you've created over the time of your life to navigate things and to really come into a place of deep understanding about what is the, the true nature of, of experience. Um, and um, that's called reobservation or the 10th stage. But, um, And then it's it's as if you see clearly that this is always how it's been, and that actually the other the other state there isn't a preference for it because it is actually so painful to be in that place. And so what you notice in coming into the these this deep integration of these insights is that the level of suffering that you experience is so dramatically less than what it was when you when you held on to these rigid structures that there's no uh, desire at all to go back into that. And in fact, when you find yourself caught up in them, uh, you, you're really looking as fast as you can for the exit to get out of them because it's so surprising how painful they are in comparison to the, the other way of being. When I was originally talking to Shinzen about this, he used a description uh, of a garden surrounded by a wall with a gate in it. On the inside of the gate was a very highly manicured, uh, laid out formal garden. And on the other side of the wall was a, just a wild tangle of completely unplanned uh, nature. And that the idea was to be able to move in and out of the gate and not get stuck on either side. So, coming out of self into no self, or coming out of creating uh, conceptual reality so that you can function well and then dropping it as soon as you don't need it anymore. And that in the beginning, managing the latch on the gate sometimes can get tricky so you could get stuck on either side of the gate. And being stuck inside the manicured garden, inside the, uh, clinging to those conceptual ideas, um, it becomes apparent pretty quickly how painful that is. If you're, if you're never able to fixate conceptual reality, you don't function very well. And so it isn't an either or. There isn't a preference for it. It's just being able to move easily through them. Uh, Shinzen used to say, and, and sometimes when we would go up to Mount Baldy and sit with uh, Sasaki Roshi, he would say, I, my job as a meditation teacher is a travel agent to move you effortlessly between heaven and hell. 
which I quite like. But that if you get stuck in the self and you get really identified with things and you have to have them go the way that you want and you, you can't bear that they're ending, uh, you're just in a, in a terrible, intense experience of suffering. Whereas you, if you can see as you're going into things that nothing is going to last and so you need to really engage it as much as you can knowing full well all along as you're engaging that it's not going to last and then that experience of suffering doesn't arise. So any questions about that before we do the meditation? All right. So let's do some sitting. Um, we'll do a little bit of concentration practice to settle in and then we will um, do the just noting gone technique. One of the things I wanted to say was that tonight, uh, as I was talking, I included a lot of my own experiences uh, in practice. There's two schools of thought about that. One is that uh, you shouldn't restrict your descriptions of states that you've attained or um, because it can create envy in people and, and disrupt their practice. And so uh, in the Tibetan tradition or in, in a more fundamentalist um, Theravada practice, it's, it's pretty heavily frowned on. It's considered uh, grossly impolite to do that. Um, I, on the other hand, am somebody who really likes to have a lot of instructions, and, and I find that the inclusion of that kind of information actually helpful to me in terms of being able to deepen my own practice. And I don't have um, um, an overwhelming experience, let's say, of envy. I do sometimes get uh, a, a, a longing that, that that would be something that I could do or have more ability to do. Um, but at the same time, the descriptions and how people um, uh, work and practice in order to get um, those, those kinds of insights I have uh, over the course of my own practice found quite helpful, and so that's why I offer them. Um, but I, and I, I do want to be sensitive to to, to uh, the 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 people who do do consider it uh, uh, bad manners. It's almost as if the voice of my mother is saying, "You need to maintain your manners at all times." <laughs> so, how did that experience go? Uh, any comments or questions about it? So you saw clearly the arising and passing, the gones. Did anybody shift to just noting the gones at the end? Did anybody notice the arising of the, the PT or the flow energy in the body? So when you do the rising and passing, uh, you do that stage until you notice that there's a strong presence of the flow energy, and then you switch your attention from the arising and passing to the flow energy. That's how you, you begin to move from the fourth stage into the fifth stage. <laughs> 
Um, the next time we um, talk about this, I'll go through the list of uh, the 10 corruptions of insight because what can happen in the arising and passing phase is, is these experiences arise and we get quite attached to them and that interferes with the, the movement from one stage to, a net, to the next. The dis dissolution stage is really about the intensity of the of the flow energy or the PT getting so strong that it, it dissolves the, the barriers between inside and outside. Um, in the beginning, it just simply dissolves the barriers between the different sense gates. So uh, it's hard to detect the difference between visual experience, auditory experience, and the felt sense of the body, and then it becomes difficult to tell the difference between inside and outside. And when that's complete, you're in, in that place of dissolution. Um, one of the things about practices, and, and, and you know, we do live in the West where there's a lot of uh, different kinds of practices that we can focus on, the Theravada practice tends to produce a very pronounced experience of no self, uh, which is the way uh, the, the, the frightening experience of realizing that that construction or that organizing principle of personality is not uh, really solid and ongoing and reliable in that sense. Um, in the Tibetan way of practicing this, and so this would be elephant path and then the first few stages, um, that self-experience is not the same. Uh, the Tibetan practices don't tend to undermine or, or dissolve the sense of self in quite the same way that the Theravada practices do. So you don't tend to have such a strong um, uh, no self-experience uh, in practicing that way. And you tend not to have um, uh, the dark night experiences or the knowledge of the miseries experiences that come from the Theravada way of practicing. So that's something to consider. I um, have uh, had the, the experiences of uh, going through the, this map, you know, countless times. And so it really is just a reference for me at this point, and there isn't much of a reaction to the, the dissolution experience and then what follows after that. And I think that most people get there. Um, if you practice enough, but what can also happen is that the, the, uh, the knowledge of the miseries is so frightening or disturbing to people that you stop practicing. And in the metta vipassana way of practicing, if the vipassana side heats up, you go into the metta side, but you don't stop practicing. One of the things that aggravates the uh, experience of uh, the knowledge of the miseries is that you stop practicing. And so it's important to understand if you want to go into this, uh, this uh, deep into this path of practice, that you understand that. Once you go past the arising and passing experience into diso the dissolution experience, you've passed the point of no return. And you can't really stop practicing uh, in, that, in that state uh, or it's too distressing. So you wanna have some, uh, some sense of, uh, of practice uh, being organized and together uh, 
enough that you, you understand that. And in the in the metta vipassana way of practicing, you simply pull back into the metta side and practice there until you become grounded again, uh, you become solid again, <laughs> and not just abandoned practice. I'm giving you all of the the uh, um, prerequisite uh, um, disclosures. So we have a question about how much is practice is enough. I think for most people that if you want to go deeply into this practice in the way that we're talking about it, that what we're actually talking about is retreat practice. Um, the householder practice doesn't tend to lead to this unless you can do self-retreat or, or organize it in that way. Um, and so um, think about um, setting up your schedule so that you can do one or two uh, retreats a year where you can just go in and, and do this. One of the advantages of doing it on retreat practice is, of course, you don't have to you don't have to do anything but get yourself from the bed to the cafeteria to the meditation hall. And so, if you get into a rough patch while you're doing the meditation, you don't have to cope. And then you can come out of it, and and you have people there that uh, hopefully will know what to do if you do get into that, and can ground you and have you solid again, so that you can leave the retreat and not have a long period of difficulty. You you often, uh, or at least in my role as a teacher, come across people who've had uh, uh, these uh, experiences of dissolution followed by the uh, dark night and or the knowledge of the miseries and not had adequate coaching um, to help them come out of it. And so it turned into a, a much bigger problem than it might need to be because of that. And so you also want to um, practice with people who can, can manage that. And so one of the reasons I like to practice with Dan and uh, Shinzen is they're both fully capable of managing whatever experiences come up. Um, any other questions or last thoughts tonight? Um, we're going to continue this class. I'm going to do a couple of more classes on this, but uh, in terms of the this progress of insight, and I'll touch briefly on the, the the further stages. But it's it's unusual to be able to get past this level of practice without being in a retreat environment or practice intensive intensively. But I do want you to have a sense of what this map is about. Um, I thought that I would uh, talk um, when we. Maybe we'll do two or three more classes on this. Let's start talking about the Satipatthana Sutta, which is another map that people often use. And I like quite a bit myself. Um, so I have my beginner's class now is on Tuesday nights, and this class is on Thursday nights. And starting next week on Wednesday night, we're going to do a level two uh, meditation and attachment class, which is um, going to be a deeper dive into the material and will include the introductory practices for the ideal parent figure. So you'll get a full representation of the three pillars approach for attachment repair, which is the ideal parent figure protocol, which repairs imagination, 
the mentalizing or metacognition uh, development and then the psychoeducation. The, we use the meditation to develop the mentalizing capacity and then the psycho, psychoeducation piece. Um, this Saturday, I'm going to do a meditation and attachment for relationships class, which is a class on collaborative relationships. So we'll spend a day just talking about the dynamics of uh, attachment and how they affect the way that uh, the dynamics of relationships are expressed and then how to move to secure functioning in a relationship regardless of what the underlying attachment conditioning is. So that will be from nine until four on Saturday. We, we have decided not to do the, the July retreat in person. We're going to do it as a five-day remote retreat. And so the, the sign-up for that is, is available. We are going to limit the participation in that retreat because we are going to do interviews on that retreat. Um, and so uh, in order for me to have the, the, the bandwidth to do the interviews uh, limits the number of people that can come into the retreat. So um, we probably will open it up after it's full, but it will be without interviews for people that come later. So if that's something that's interesting to you, uh, take a look at that. Uh, lastly, uh, I, I'm doing med morning meditation. I, I don't even know how long I've been doing morning meditation, but it's, it's probably like 15 years of uh, getting up and, and doing the uh, guided meditation. We have switched it to Patreon, and so the posts are up there with, with written instructions for each of them. And so if you want uh, so a framework of support for your daily practice, take a look at that. You, you, the links to it are on the the website, metagroup.org. Um, I do offer the teaching on a data basis. So uh, if you have resources and you're able to contribute to support myself and also Metagroup and the things that we're doing, you can go onto the website and there's a link there that will take you to a, a, a donation page. Any a contribution is really appreciated uh, because it does help support uh, not only me, but the, the range of work that we're trying to do. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks, Harley.